Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I, I hate to be the one who says this, but what if, what if this turned out to be the weirdest case of catfishing? What is catfishing? That's like when somebody is online pretending to be someone else and then begins to rope people in real life into intense situations, usually romantic. Mm-hmm with that person's invented persona. Yeah. But if this turns out to be some sort of fantasy that he's living out, like this is the most strange and profound fantasy I've ever heard of. Well, it turned out to be the most strange and profound fantasy he ever heard of. So that was audio producer Andy Mills speaking to reporter Rukmini Kalamaki on an episode of their show Caliphate, the New York Times blockbuster breakout hit podcast that was spun out in 2018 from the New York Times' other blockbuster breakout hit podcast, The Daily. Now, between those two podcasts, the New York Times was looking until very recently like an untouchable giant of podcasting, a new entrant to the field that rapidly shot up to the number one spot. The Daily seemed to just instantly become a major part of the news diet of more than 4 million daily listeners. I'm one of them. The show drives digital subscriptions to the New York Times, but it also makes serious money directly through advertising. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Times audio department, which is mostly the Daily, pulls $29 million U.S. every year. The New York Times doubled down, tripled down in audio. They started buying podcast technology companies. They bought the production company that makes the podcast serial. Podcasts for the New York Times have been wildly popular, lucrative, and celebrated. Caliphate won the Peabody Award, which is known as the top prize, the Pulitzer for audio, since audio was traditionally excluded from Pulitzers. But Caliphate almost won a Pulitzer too. They were shortlisted as a finalist. The show was something of a triumph until it all came crashing down. And this is where things really go haywire. Something was off with his passport, right? It doesn't make sense. This stuff is really annoying me. And it was at that point that I felt a sinking feeling in my stomach. Last September, the RCMP charged 25-year-old Burlington resident Shiroz Chowdhury with perpetrating a terrorist hoax. Yes, it is illegal to be a terrorist in Canada, but it is also illegal to pretend to be one. And if the RCMP is right, and Shiroz Chowdhury was never a terrorist, 
Never a member of ISIS, known as Abu Huzaifa al-Kanadi. Never an executioner for the Islamic State who drove a blade into an apostate's heart, causing his warm blood to spray everywhere. If all of that is bullshit, then most of Caliphate is bullshit too. And that does seem to be the case. After the RCMP laid charges, the New York Times revisited earlier concerns that were raised, speculation and criticism, and scrutiny of the veracity of Caliphate. They launched an investigation into their own reporting, which is kind of like performing an autopsy on yourself. Fucking up in journalism is particularly gut-wrenching because it's not good enough to just say, I fucked up, I'm sorry. You need to re-chew every bite of it. You need to say, okay, I fucked up on this. I kind of fucked up on that. That part over there, that part's still good. You got to go through it all. And if you don't do all that, if you just say mercy, like enough, I surrender. I, 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 I admit it. It's all fucked. Can I just please go hide under my bed now? Well, if you do that, then you risk fucking up again by overcorrecting. So the nature of a correction is important. You know, is it even a correction or just a clarification? Is a correction enough or do you need to retract the whole thing? Once you do retract it, can we please just remove it and unpublish it? Or do we need to leave the whole mess up there in public forever because the fact that we fucked up is now part of the story? It is painful, messy stuff. And in any newsroom, it can be hard to get consensus on it. But with Caliphate, Two and a half years after the podcast was launched, it seemed that consensus was finally reached. And it went to the very top level. Here is the New York Times executive editor, Dean Bequet, taking the hit himself in an accountability interview on NPR. I think we fell in love with the fact that we had gotten a member of ISIS who would describe his life in the caliphate and would describe his crimes. And frankly, I think we were so in love with it that when, when we saw evidence that maybe he was a fabulist, when we saw evidence that he was making some of it up, we didn't listen hard enough to the evidence. And the end result, I think, is that we produced a very ambitious story that did not have very ambitious vetting. Um, and I think that we got it wrong. If you go check out Caliphate now on the New York Times website, you'll see an editor's note where the Times tells you that they've concluded that, quote, episodes of Caliphate that presented Mr. Chaudhry's claims did not meet our standards for accuracy. The Times said that those episodes, which comprise most of the series, contain significant falsehoods and other discrepancies from Chaudhry, and that their reporters and editors, quote, could have vetted more thoroughly materials Mr. Chaudhry provided. Now, to me, that sounds very clearly like the New York Times admitting that, at a minimum, they had a fact-checking problem. I mean, a big one. They, they gave back the Peabody and the Pulitzer Citation. And that failure, that recognized failure to properly check facts, is what Rukmini Kalamaki seemed to acknowledge herself in her own public apology, where she wrote, quote, reflecting on what I missed in reporting our podcast has been humbling. I caught the subject of our podcast lying about key aspects of his account, and I reported that. I also didn't catch other lies he told us, and I should have. I apologize for what we missed and what we got wrong. We are correcting the record, and I commit to doing better in the future. So there it is again. It's, it seems like consensus to me. She didn't catch some of the lies. A fact-checking problem, just like her bosses said. Which is why it was so surprising to us when we went to Rukmini Kalamaki for comment and she responded by warning us to not call it a fact-checking problem. She wrote to us, quote, I would caution you from calling it a fact-checking problem. And then Rukmini Kalamaki went on to defend her fact-checking and defend the New York Times, boasting that they were, quote, the only media outlet that caught him, Shiroz Chowdhury, lying. And Kalamaki told us that Chowdhury's false timeline, quote, remains uncorrected in stories done by numerous Canadian outlets. So yeah, that did surprise us. It surprised us to learn that when it comes to figuring out what went wrong with Caliphate, 
The position of New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki is very different than the position of the New York Times. There was something else about her reply that surprised us as well. Kalamaki prefaced her comments to Canada Land by saying that the Times had asked her not to comment, so everything that she was about to tell us was off the record. But that is not how off the record works. Off the record is something that the reporter has to agree to. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, this is off the record. And I have to believe that an experienced reporter like Rukmini Kalamaki knows that. But I called her up to make sure. Hi, Rukmini. Hi, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to speak uh, um, uh, about Caliphate. Um, I've sent an email to your colleague with some pointers, but I'm not actually allowed to talk about it. We would not have accepted off-the-record status had you asked for it. I just want to give you the courtesy of letting you know that we do consider that an on-the-record statement, and we'll be using it in our broadcast. And if you wanted to say anything else on the record or modify the statement in any way, I wanted to give you that opportunity. Hello? People, this is a mess. The implosion of Caliphate is, is a slow-motion journalistic catastrophe. As the show's credibility crumbled, Rukmini Kalamaki was not the only one covered in the debris. As you'll hear today, Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily, was slammed for the way that he responded, back-channeling to journalists who were tweeting about Caliphate to ask them to soften their criticisms. And he also failed to disclose his own conflict when talking about this whole incident on the air. You see, Lisa Tobin, Caliphate's executive producer, is Michael Barbaro's fiancé. More than 20 public radio stations that syndicate the Daily sent the New York Times a scathing rebuke. Barbaro apologized for pressuring critics, but neither he nor the New York Times believed that he did anything wrong by withholding from listeners his personal connection to Caliphate as he was covering the problems that that show faced. What else? The entire New York Times audio department is being put under new supervision by management towards the embarrassing goal of getting it up to editorial standards and, quote, developing new processes to vet ambitious audio series. And there's been this other impact that, that kind of goes beyond journalistic circles. The way that people think about the New York Times might be changing. The brand seems a bit tarnished. What am I talking about? Just last week, New York Times editor Lauren Wolf was fired for a pretty innocuous tweet expressing relief about the Biden presidency. Well, after they fired Lauren Wolf, the New York Times management faced an uproarious public backlash that seemed to go well beyond uh, the journalism bubble. The feeling was, as expressed by many, that neither Rukmini Kalamaki or her producer Andy Mills had been fired for, for lapses that were arguably a lot more dubious than a tweet. In fact, Andy Mills has faced no consequences at all. And that inaction from the New York Times management, that invulnerability of Andy Mills, that was something that was particularly galling to a lot of women who had worked with Andy Mills in the past and experienced his behavior firsthand. A quick disclosure, the producer of this episode, Kasia Mihailovich, briefly worked alongside Andy Mills at WNYC, but never experienced or witnessed any misconduct from him. So here we go. Our job today is to try to figure out exactly what went wrong with Caliphate and what it all means. And the first person I will speak to is the guy who has been documenting it all for the Washington Post, their media critic, Eric Wemple. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Daniel Taggart-Hodge, Kayla Connolly, Samantha Nock, Stephanie Legere, Heather Keen, Deborah Tehanyi, Timothy Collard, and Brent. This is Brent from Okotoks, Alberta. I support Canada Land because I think it is important to have exposure to ideas and views from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives, especially those you might not identify with at first. I believe Canada Land provides those views from sources that are not readily presented to us from most other sources. And my new pair of socks every year is like a Christmas present to myself for supporting independent journalism. Eric, what was the first sign that there might be something wrong with the podcast Caliphate? The first signs arose very much in the spring of 2018 
when they started rolling out these episodes in which the central character in the podcast series, Abu Huzaifa, uh, who we later know as Shiroz Chaudhry, was telling these New York Times journalists about all his exploits as a terrorist in the Islamic State. I stabbed him. The blood was just, it was warm. And it sprayed everywhere. And the guy cried, was crying and screaming. He talked about killing two people, participating in two executions. And there were some rumblings in the Canadian media to the effect of, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is this guy telling the truth to? Because he had already been interviewed by Canadian media outlets and didn't mention killing anybody. Did you shoot anyone? Did you get close? You know, were you involved in these kinds of beheadings and these notorious things that, that we'd seen uh, video clips of? And he said categorically, no, he was not involved in any of those things. He lashed a few people, he arrested a few people, he locked people up for smoking in public, which, which violated uh, ISIS's rules. Nothing like what he told uh, Ms. Kalamaki um, and the New York Times in this, po- in this wonderful podcast. So we wanted to hear from him face to face. And he started sobbing and crying and saying that he made it up. Now, the way that uh, New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki um, explained that was she said that she had actually spoken to uh, Chaudhry like shortly before these other Canadian reporters. And her explanation not only seemed to kind of speak to that concern, but it actually made the story a bit sexier because she said right after I spoke with him, shortly after I spoke with him, law enforcement was onto it. So he clammed up and changed his story. So there was this short window where he was he was telling the truth and we had this rare uh, opportunity to get him confessing to these murders, which actually just made it a much more interesting podcast to check out. It's totally true. Her claim, and I believe she made it on Canadian TV, was she got to him early. And the Caliphate podcast doesn't even mention the discrepancy with the Canadian reports so if you just listened to that Caliphate podcast, you could well have gone unaware that this discrepancy was out there. I don't know if that aligns with what you experienced reading and listening to the podcast, but I went through it many times, and I never saw where they ever credited the Canadian media organizations. And I think that's because the New York Times thought that it had the whole truth exclusive um, from day one. It's clear from Kalimaki's statements in many venues about this whole thing that she was tremendously proud to have alighted first on this guy and to have pulled in the first interview with him. You know, I think that she probably in retrospect would wish that she hadn't, (laughs) you know, gotten that first interview or any interview with this guy. Yeah. All right, what happened next? So, you know, they decide to disregard this challenge to their story, and the podcast continues to, to wide acclaim. How did this all come crashing down? I think what happened is, yes, you know, technically um, disregard, I think, is fair, but they did try to grapple with the inconsistency and some of the flimsiness in the story that he laid out. As they went along and edited and pieced together this podcast series, they noticed that his timeline for when he had been in Syria didn't quite fit together with the stamps on his passport and so on and so forth. So that that's what chapter six of the podcast series is all about, where they sit there and say, hmm, this looks a little fishy. When could he have gone? And then they like basically retrofit or bootstrap another timeline for him. So that puts it there right here. That lines up. That That actually lines up right here. I think he learned of the caliphate. He saw the shit was happening, and he was like, shit, I'm going to go. So I wonder if he was telling us a curated story. That theory would answer a lot of questions. Interesting theory, Windy Door. (laughs) They're doing his work for him, and then they call him and said, did you do this? And he's like, yeah, kind of like, yeah, that's that's what I did. Um, So it's all... It's all sort of really flimsy. And I got to say, as a matter of honesty, I think I should have been hipper to it earlier. Yeah. But the, I think the problem was one of the things that gave me a 
reassurance about the whole situation was that the Times had brought in three national security reporters, and they sort of came back with information that Caliphate represented as supporting the idea that this guy was a terrorist. Yeah, but that, uh, I mean, this is sort of when your story is challenged, getting experts to, or independent verification, that's how you fight for your story. And it looks like she, she had the goods. She came back and said, all right, here, here's, uh, here, here's what the experts say. What was the problem with that? What is the problem with that? I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I'm delighted that we're down in this rabbit hole. My view of that is that if you listen to the podcast, Kalimaki seems to assign these three Washington-based reporters on the spot, right? Like in the podcast, she says, can you check into this guy, right? Now, I don't know if there were other details transmitted to these guys outside of the podcast, but the nature of the inquiry was, is this guy a terrorist? I think if the thrust had been, look, this guy says he's a terrorist, but now we have our concerns. We think we have found a problem with his timeline. Can you ask the U.S. officials about that? Those are two different inquiries, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like if you go to a U.S. official and say, here's a name. Is this guy on a watch list or is he a terrorist? You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, he's, he's on all the list. And that's what they said. Right. But if you ask them. We now have concerns about whether this guy who has claimed in Canadian media that he's a terrorist is actually a terrorist. That might, right, that might stir a different response, right? Then the, your source might say, let me check on that. You know, my feeling about this is that by the time that the New York Times pulled in these three national security reporters, they knew more about Chaudhry or Abu Huzaifa than probably the U.S., intelligence sources that they were going to. You can't tell me that your average national security source in Washington is going to have that much familiarity with a Canadian alleged terrorist. You know, I don't want to be completely one-sided about this. I do believe that in the podcast, Kalimaki says that she told the reporters about some of the, some of the static they picked up about this guy's timeline. So I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that this was completely fraught. I just don't know exactly what questions were raised with the U.S. officials. You know what I'm saying? I don't have those emails. I don't, you know, I don't have recordings of those phone calls of exactly how those New York Times reporters approached those officials. I think that the tenor and the, the details of those particular transactions would have been really important. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that in their kind of accountability episode in Chapter 6 of Caliphate, you hear its producer, Andy Mills, ask the right question, sort of. The question you're supposed to ask is not, is there a way that this could still be true, but is there any way that it's all bullshit? Yes. And I did point out when talking about Mills that, to his credit, he did raise that issue. But then it gets basically, by my reading anyways, it gets shunted aside. Mm -hmm. They figure out another way that they can piece it together and they go on their merry way and then they go to Mosul and then they come back and they do a wrap-up episode and as far as I can see, they leave the impression that those first five chapters are intact. They put together a, a really long paragraph describing the series for their Peabody Award. It doesn't mention anything about like, you know, the struggle for truth here. <laughs> <laughs> well, th there was a retrofitting that where, where Rukmini, I think, tried to overly suggest that the whole series was a quest for uh, truth about is this a reliable narrator or not? Is this a reliable source or not? Which, which is true of episode six, but not the first five. Uh, that seemed a little disingenuous. I'd say highly, highly disingenuous. Yeah, I, I think she can be faulted for that. But I think that Look, they didn't want the story to not be true. They, uh, I don't think that they were catfishing us from episode one. I think that they believed this guy. And, you know, you're telling a story, questions come up, dedicating a whole episode to transparency is exactly what you should do.
and they did the right thing by a certain interpretation. Now, you've written that Caliphate was a sprawling and incoherent mess from the moment of its release in spring 2018. That suggests to me that you feel like the, 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 the problems with this were evident right from the beginning. Like, do you feel like this didn't pass the smell test from the start? Or can you, as one reporter to another, I don't know, empathize with something that you're so invested in that, that you think is true, and then once you're already publishing it to wide acclaim, it, it, it just falls to, right. to bits in your hands? Well, I suppose I should I should have added to that <laughs> to that quote, you know, in retrospect, because I I saw it at the time, and I wish I had flagged it in you know June of 2018. Your your question is, do you allow that this could have been just an honest journalistic mistake? Mm-hmm. And I do, I do. I mean, as much as I think that Kalimaki did root for the story and was tremendously, tremendously credulous here. I think it's just too much of a stretch to believe that they thought they could pull the wool over uh, the whole world's eyes. I, I just don't think that that was afoot here. But I do think, and I'm not sure exactly which episode, this could be episode one, could be episode two, but there's a part there where Kalimaki is like talking with Mills and voicing her frustrations about the beat. Right where she she talks about how you know oh, I've I've dealt with um, all these ISIS people coming back from ISIS and maybe they saw something or maybe they heard about something but they never admit to doing the act themselves. The overwhelming pattern is that they'll have witnessed an execution, they'll have witnessed a beheading, they'll have been present when a stoning took place. When you saw those things, did you feel sick to your stomach? Yeah. What was your reaction? I was shaky because yeah, I was shocked. But they never took part in it themselves. That to me is a real, yeah. real telltale moment in the series because it signals to me, at least in retrospect again, that she was really excited about having this guy confessing and that the bar was going to be high for her to disbelieve him. Bashir, do you want to tell me what really happened or do you not want to be interviewed at all? They present themselves as having been witnesses to horror, but never having carried out the horror themselves. I've, I've lost interest because he's contradicted himself so many times that I just can't tell that anything he's saying is true. That's usually how it goes. Usually. So it was just, you know, reporting that didn't quite bear out. I mean, she was a very, 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 very motivated and fierce, ferocious reporter, okay? So she... She really worked things. She got all her her claim to fame was that she would go into war zones and she'd grab all the documents she could. She did that in Mali for the AP, I think. Mm. She did that in Iraq later and got in a bunch of trouble with people who thought that she was, you know, committing these uh, um, sort of colonialistic uh, aggression against Iraq by taking its culture and heritage. It's artifacts or it's its own. Artifacts, what do you think yeah, of that? Yeah. I, I can relate to a reporter grabbing that stuff when they can. <laughs> I, too, can relate to a reporter grabbing. I, I do believe, well, let me just put it this way. I have not included that in my criticisms of Kalimaki. Uh-huh. And there's a reason for that, and that is that I do believe that journalists get something of an exemption for that, you know, colonial um, depredation accusation because they're trying to tell the truth. Their goal is to preserve these things. I do understand why, you know, taking them out of the country was troublesome. Um, But, you know, they held on to them. I believe they returned them. I'm not, that's not my big thing with Rukmini Kalimaki. What do you think about it? I agree with you. I feel like I don't necessarily feel like it's like taking a priceless old vase or looting a temple. That analogy doesn't necessarily hold up for me. And to the degree that it is stealing, you're, you're, you're coming into another country and you're sorting through the rubble and, and, and taking something that I guess isn't yours. I don't care because I guess I feel like we do get a pass because the, the, we're, we're there to tell the truth. It, it screams of maybe not censorship, but it screams of some form of like walk past the story. And I just don't think journalists can do that when they're doing no harm by picking up all these papers. Right. I mean, yeah, 
I, later I'm going to talk with somebody who feels very differently than you and I, but but I, I do agree with you about this. Tell me a bit, Eric, about as a result of this aggressive reporting from Rukmini, who she is, or I guess who she was within the New York Times culture. And, and maybe to do that, tell me a little bit about that culture itself. What you have in the New York Times pretty much, you know, Rukmini got there, I think, late in 2014. And the Times is is obviously a very well-established culture, um, and its foreign correspondencies are, are, are plum positions. It's a, it, there's, it's, a, it's a serious job. And Rukmini came in, and what she was able to arrange for herself, and I think it's through a lot of hard work, was sort of this person who dropped in for these huge enterprise stories, like, if you look at her her clips, so on and so forth, there are a lot of big takeouts, right? And I think that a lot of the journalists who had been working there noticed that this was quite an exceptional setup. My understanding of how they got along or didn't get along related primarily to the content. They saw problems with the reporting they saw that she was moving really fast on some of these stories and uh, being a little sloppy. They knew a lot of the same sources she was relying on. And that's how the whole thing with uh, Abu al-Jud came to pass, this concern about whether the source who had apparently seen some of these U.S. citizen hostages of ISIS, and they were concerned about that source's fidelity, reliability. Mm -hmm. And so... But Rukmini was sort of parachuting in and doing these big things. And people, and I don't think that they were wrong either, people saw problems with her, with the way she went about it and sometimes with what ended up printed. There were other smaller things that I remember people telling me. But it was a real hard story to sort of nail down. It, it, it emerged several years later that the New York Times assigned someone to basically re-report that hostage story that she won a Polk Award for. That wasn't clear to me at the time. These people who uh, helmed these foreign correspondency positions, they were serious journalists and still are. And I think that what pissed them off the most was that upper management wrote off their concerns as just like professional jealousy. That turned out not to have been the case. Co colleagues were raising red flags and letting management know, be careful here about about Rukmini's reporting and 100 percent yeah. they were. Yes, they were. But reporters have editors. And part of what editors are there to do, a big part of what they're there to do is to protect reporters from themselves when reporters get too excited about a story. And those editors have superiors who are supposed to also act as a check against exactly what has happened to Caliphate. Where where did the Times, not Rukmini, but the, the New York Times go wrong with this one? I think it's um at the level just below the executive editor, the international folks. I think, you know, I think Joe Kahn was a big champion of Rukmini at the paper, uh, stood up for her, stood behind her. Um, and my understanding is that he and others have expressed regret mm -hmm. to those people. I, I reported on this after the, the retraction was published. And it, I think they sent a note around to the newsroom kind of obliquely acknowledging that dimension of things. And, you know, I think that that was, is a big failing. Uh, I also think that overall, the New York Times spent a lot of resources going back and looking at this thing. Mm -hmm. And they did what I view as maybe not a textbook retraction, you know, because they didn't use the word retraction, but a pretty goddamn good, like, this is wrong, we can't stand by this. Here's an interview with NPR. Here's an interview with Michael Barbaro. Here's editor's notes sprinkled across all of the you know relevant URLs. Yeah, it's not a correction buried at the back of the paper, right? Absolutely not. I think they took their lumps on it. But most impressive to me was that they put four reporters on trying to track down the truth on it. Mm -hmm. What about the fact that Rukmini is taking the blame. She's the one who was reassigned and is, uh, as the face of Caliphate, she's the face of its uh, of its failure. But Andy Mills, who who pitched Caliphate, who was on air, who was the producer, doesn't seem like anything's happened to him. Yeah, that's something I've, I've been looking into myself as well. And 
that is, I think, a legitimate gripe, not only of people in the audio community, but some of the public radio stations, too, that have spoken up and said, you know, how, how have you dealt with this situation? We, we, you know, we beam out the daily every day. We trust that you guys have good personnel and so on and so forth. Our, our audiences believe in a product that has integrity not only on the air, but, you know, in... In, in, in the office as well. So, I mean, I don't know. I think they're still answering questions from some of the public radio uh, stations about how they how they dealt with all this. But I think that they will wiggle through that one. I mean, they're, they're doing more. The, the stations that carry the daily are doing more than challenging or questioning um, the way that management has dealt yeah, with this. Yeah, a few of them dropped them. They dropped, yeah. Them and, they're, and they've challenged Michael Barbaro, who's apologized. Like, this is taking down or at least blemishing a lot of people associated with it. You know, there are 280-something stations that carry the daily, and like, as far as I know, three or four of them have dropped it. Barbaro's situation was sort of a little bit weird. You know, by the same token, he didn't say anything false. He didn't screw over a source. He was trying to soften the coverage uh, in the behind the scenes, and it was unseemly. I mean, if I ran a radio station, I don't think I, I don't think I'd pull the plug on the daily over that. Yeah. Um, the Mills situation, I think, is a little more serious because he had a record of problematic behavior in the workplace before he came aboard the daily. I'm not. I'm pretty sure they didn't know full well about that, um, but that creates a new problem because you know what do you do? You know now you do know. Eric, is it possible? that the essential story was true? I mean, we talk about how they didn't technically retract it. That might be for a reason. Well, my this is a great question, by the way. I love this. Yes, Thank it's you. always possible because the Times, if you read their investigation on it, they, they were very careful about saying that he never went to Syria. They were like, we cannot prove that he went to Syria, and but they do say that if he did go to Syria, it was in such a short window of time that he never could have carried out all the activities he professed to have carried out. That, they say, with, with quite a degree of certainty. Now, uh, I think it was just yesterday that Chaudhry had his second appointment, you know, in the trial. You know, I was wondering whether the New York Times would do this before the trial. I thought it was still a little premature for the New York Times to go ahead and do this before the trial shook out. Because presumably there will be evidence produced showing that he didn't go to Syria. Otherwise, they wouldn't have charged him with hoaxing this, right? It is possible. But I don't think that's why the New York Times didn't put retraction on it. Because the wording in their editor's note is essentially the definition of retraction. They just didn't go ahead and use the term. Yeah. So maybe maybe they, they hesitated on that one word but if it turns out that he did do some of this stuff or did go and participate in terrorist activities, they're going to have to... <laughs> what happens then? What? They're going to have to undo their their um, editors, though, because right. it would be wild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Once again, it's betterhelp.com 
slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Okay, so according to my next guest, all this talk about lapses in journalistic process might be missing the point. The greater truth revealed by the Caliphate, and it's a truth that goes beyond process, goes beyond one reporter's failings, it's about the way that the New York Times covers terrorism and the Middle East, and the way that it has covered these subjects for decades. An alleged bias that left the paper of record vulnerable to exactly the kind of errors at the heart of Caliphate. Leila Al-Aryan is an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning journalist and the executive producer of Al Jazeera's English documentary series, Fault Lines. She joins me from the Washington, D.C. area. I would say my first reaction was not surprised because I listened to Calafe. I've been following Rukmini Kalamaki's work, and I think like a lot of outside observers, but also like some of her own colleagues who've kind of been, it's come out in recent months that they'd been sounding the alarm for years about her work. Um, in fact, C.J. Shivers, uh, who's a, a veteran war correspondent, said that he was worried her reporting was going to burn the place down if her editors were not you know, sort of more careful in catching some of the issues. I caught a lot of red flags and I felt like it was not as rigorous, it was not as skeptical, and it was not as nuanced as it could and should have been. So I wasn't completely surprised when I heard the news. Can you talk a little bit more about the information you had about Rukmini that I didn't and that many people didn't who just, okay, this is the Times a terrorism reporter who knows so much about ISIS. There's a, a critique of the way that she engages with her beat. You know, as we all know, she's been covering ISIS for years, Al-Qaeda before that and during that. Of course, she was a high-profile star journalist at the New York Times. But for me, uh, I really started scratching my head after the horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas in 2017, when for days she was kind of recklessly speculating that the shooter, Stephen Paddock, had converted to Islam and had pledged allegiance to ISIS and had committed this horrific mass shooting at the behest of ISIS. Um, she was basing a lot of that on Twitter, on ISIS publications. And I just felt that if this were any other topic, the New York Times would not allow a journalist to recklessly speculate like that for days on end. So I just felt like following some of her work that it you know, had a tendency to be a bit sensationalist especially some of the her sort of Twitter <laughs> behavior, which I think in some ways she represented, um, as Ben Smith, a New York Times columnist, put it, sort of the new model of a New York Times journalist, where it became more of a celebrification of journalism, where the journalist is kind of one of the stars of the narrative, as you can see in the, in the podcast Caliphate. And I feel that oftentimes in the so-called terrorism beat, there's different standards, uh, different standards of professionalism and oftentimes a lack of scrutiny on the work. And I think I argue it's because it often confirms people's worst fears and their worst beliefs and their biases and blind spots when it comes to the region. Did, do you feel that she approached her beat with a bias? I do in some ways, and I think that bias even comes out quite casually in, in uh, interviews she gave. Just to give you an example, after she wrote an article about how ISIS enshrined theology in its um, mass rape of 
um, you know, women and girls, Yazidi women and girls who are in captivity. She went on NPR. It was a morning show. And she was asked at the very end how the women's families kind of reacted, how the Yazidi community as a whole reacted to everything. And she said that the families that I saw very much supported their daughters, very much saw it as not their fault. And that was encouraging. You know, that's something that in this part of the world I I find is, um, you know, is not usually the case. Nobody really noticed that. It was just kind of went unnoticed, uncommented Mm -hmm. on. But it's actually pretty offensive to say that in the Middle East, families don't support their daughters who are raped. And I just think that kind of casual racism, these kinds of casual attitudes just seep into people's work. Um, Another example, you know, I say, I I kind of argue that caliphate overemphasizes the role of religious ideology while undercovering the geopolitical context of the Middle East. After all, ISIS was created in Iraq, a country that was invaded, occupied, and destabilized by the United States. And in the wake of the horrific violence of the occupation of the war, this armed group kind of emerges. And I believe that that context is missing from much of her reporting, including Caliphate. But when she and her producer, Andy Mills, did an interview on Reddit and then Ask Me Anything, they were actually asked, what are the biggest misconceptions about ISIS? So Andy Mills responds, in the West, it's that religion plays no role. And in Iraq, it's that it was created by the U.S. (laughs) So I don't know what he's talking about. Since 9-11, the overwhelming... A majority of conversations about that attack was what is wrong with Islam? We need a reformation within Islam. What is it about this religion that makes people into violent terrorists? So for him to have that perspective is pretty curious. And in some ways, I found that answer pretty revealing. It almost suggests that he's going to correct people of those assumptions and and reassert, consistent with what you're saying, no, this is about religion, and we're going to take you through this with, with that perspective. And that, I guess, begs the question of, like, whether that's something that he came into that reporting with or came out of it with. Exactly. And if you look at the team that worked on the podcast, there were no Muslims on it. I don't believe anybody spoke Arabic. And, you know, there was a large reckoning within the media industry over the summer, you know, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. And there was a really, what I thought was a really useful conversation about how do we tell stories in a way that's authentic and how do we make our industry more inclusive? And I think that should definitely also apply to the coverage of the Middle East. You need people who know what they're talking about. You need people who speak the language, who understand the culture, who don't sensationalize or exoticize the culture. So you don't have things like a podcast where the reporter sort of makes herself the main character, the main star, and talks about how, um, you know, the podcast actually starts in a way that I would argue is quite sensationalist, where she recounts a day in which she was home alone And suddenly, my Rhodesian Ridgeback, which is a big dog, starts growling. The hair on his back is straight up. Immediately afterwards, I start hearing somebody ringing the doorbell downstairs. And there was knocking at her door, and she was convinced that ISIS uh, finally came to her door, and she calls 911. 911, where is your emergency? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I- I'm sorry to bother you. I don't know if this is an emergency. So the FBI agent who had come to see me had told me that they had alerted the particular police precinct uh, where I lived. He said, if you ever have you know, any issues, all you have to do is call 911. They have you on a list. We'd rather that you call um, rather than waiting for, you know, for something to happen. My name is Rukmini Kalimaki, and I've had direct threats against me and my family. Ma'am, where is your emergency? It turns out it was actually the water main break in the neighborhood. Um, So, you know, you could argue this was a reporter who was covering this group for, for a number of years who received threats, and that's sort of the natural result of that. Or you could say... This is pretty sensationalist. It's, it almost feels like a Hollywood movie. And is this really serving the cause of informing our audience? I'm trying to figure out a way to ask, ask you this question. Why don't I ask you this question this way? Um, if Rukmini Kalamaki's name was Laura Jones, would she have been given less room or deference, both from the Times, perhaps, and, and, and the audience, to pursue these characterizations? That's a good question. I'm actually not sure uh, one way or the other. I mean, I I have heard that a lot of people assumed uh, because she has an Indian first name that she was perhaps, you know, from the region. 
I don't know for sure. I think it has more to do with the overall coverage of the Middle East and of you know terrorism and terrorist groups within the New York Times. You know, she's not the only person who's kind of participated in in, uh, in these tropes that I'm talking about. We are really focusing on one individual, and I think that that's that's fair because they focus the show on one individual. But there is a, a history with the New York Times itself when covering terrorism, when covering the Middle East. This is part of a larger history that I know you've been tracking. Yeah, I mean, I think let's go back to the war in Iraq itself and the fact that, you know, you had a reporter by, by the name of Judith Miller, but not just her. There were other reporters who were laundering misinformation, fake news, if you will, um, from kind of discredited Iraqi dissidents and also people within the U.S. intelligence community within the Bush administration who were hungry for war, hungry for selling this war to the public, even though it was really clear that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And they um, published lies, they published inaccurate information about Iraq's supposed weapons of mass destruction Program And in the end, um, you know, it really helped pave the way for the war in Iraq and ultimately helped pave the way for the creation of a group like ISIS, a group like Al-Qaeda in Iraq, all the devastation that the Iraqi people have had to endure. Just to look back at the New York Times' apology following the Iraq war, they admitted that they found instances of coverage that were not as rigorous as it should have been. And I think... This lack of rigor also when it comes to caliphate is a trend that you see. As uh, the Washington Post critic Eric Wumpel put it, they were rooting for the story. I would go a step further and say they were rooting for the story because it confirmed what people want to watch and hear, which is a brown Muslim man talking about stabbing someone in the heart. These are the sort of sensationalist images that people yearn for that confirm people's biases, but I don't think they're ready to have that conversation. And, and I think when that falls apart, you know, I think it just all it does is it hurts our industry and it affects people's trust in the industry. And in this case, we know that it had impact in Canada, right? Like when the podcast came out, there was this outcry that there's a terrorist on the loose. The Canadian opposition uh, in particular was furious and they said that this guy should be locked up. But it also ended up impacting the chance for widows, wives, children of ISIS members to actually be brought back and repatriated to Canada. So we know that it had an impact and the New York Times did not acknowledge this impact, did not apologize for it. And I feel like that was another glaring omission in its investigation and its apology. Well, I don't know, actually, I wouldn't really call it an apology, but in in its statement about caliphate. Yeah, I believe uh, conservative MP Candace Bergen called him, you know, this animal uh, among us. And, you know, why is uh, the government allowing this to happen? Now, the government today said that now they can't talk about returning ISIS terrorists. They seem to have no problem talking about them when they were defending their uh, ability to come back to the country. Prime Minister Trudeau had no problem talking about them when he said they need to be reintegrated back into Canadian society. But today, there's an individual that is probably walking around the streets of Toronto. He should be arrested today. And that, that's, you know, it's incredible in Canada, the impact the New York Times has. Finally, I want to just talk with you about the level of accountability that came out of the Daily itself, of which, uh, a show of which Caliphate was a spinoff. Michael Barbaro, who you mentioned, the host of the Daily strangely conducted this interview with Dean Baquet as part of their kind of mea culpa transparency process as this was being kind of semi-retracted. That became very controversial in that he did not disclose the fact that his fiancée, Lisa Tobin, was the executive producer of Caliphate. Um, yeah. And the, and yeah. the, the uh, collapse of Caliphate is obviously a personal issue where he has an interest and um, probably some strong emotions. He's since apologized for some of his behavior, which included reaching out to other journalists on Twitter, some not at the Times, to kind of ask them to tone down their criticism. Were were, were you one of those one of those journalists who he reached out to? I was. I mean, he was pretty polite about it, I guess, <laughs> but um, he was just trying to. So I know I know that some people felt bullied. I didn't feel bullied. 
Although it is strange to be DM'd by somebody whose voice you hear every morning. But anyway, um, I think he was trying to control the message um, because people were saying it was retracted. So he was kind of DMing people to say, actually, it wasn't retracted because we stand by the other episodes that don't feature uh, Abu Huzaifa or Shiroz Chaudhry. I think it's kind of a strange <laughs> approach to take considering you know, you, you set out at the out. I mean, there's all these conflicts of interest, right? Caliphate premiered on the daily. His fiance was the EP of Caliphate. One of his producers, Andy Mills, was basically the main producer and one of the stars of Caliphate. So putting aside all these conflicts of interest that kind of taint the retraction process. And then he goes on to conduct the interview with Dean Bacay and Mark Mazzetti on the podcast that um, explained the caliphate semi-retraction, but then to kind of go on this offensive telling people it wasn't retracted because there's a couple of episodes that don't mention this guy, um, I just think is missing the forest for the trees, if you will. Like, it's not the point, right? The point is that you set out in this podcast to say, we're going to tell you what ISIS is really about through the testimony of this guy. And this guy's testimony turned out to be probably all fake. So you have to kind of be humble and accept that rather than argue over terms of retraction or not retraction. And then, you know, my response to him was, I hope the Times takes this opportunity to do some soul searching. Um, but his point was, well, what about the interviews uh, with the Yazidi women and girls? But I told him, I actually feel like there's ethical issues with those interviews, right? Like in, in one of the episodes, Kalamaki has an underage Yazidi girl um, actually confirmed the voice of her rapist, um, who was a member of ISIS, on the phone. And I just said, like, would this fly in the United States? Or would mm -hmm. we have serious ethical conversations about, do you ask an underage rape victim to do this? So I do think sometimes when you're covering a different region, a different culture, there's emotional and, and physical distance that mean that you're not necessarily applying the same standards that you would apply elsewhere. And I think we need, we as journalists need to catch ourselves when that happens. Did he answer that question? Um, I think he just said, like, yeah, we're having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is really complicated stuff. And I, I've seen instances where certainly in those in those scrambling early moments of the story falling apart, trying to say, getting a DM from Michael Barbaro, I, I, just the fact of that alone, I, I'm sure would feel like aggressive or, or maybe even bullying to some people. Then you, then you tell me, well, he was actually trying to kind of like uh, parse some sort of fact check. Well, yes, it's, this is, this is retracted, but that isn't, which is, I guess, within the realm of just a journalist trying to convey facts to somebody who's, who's talking about it, but also seems to speak to me to an early moment where he was trying to kind of like, uh, save what he could or salvage what he could of this thing. But you don't want to overcorrect either because, you know, in the, in the interest yeah. of taking responsibility, you can't actually say things that you don't know. You can't say he was never in Syria. Caliphate is just sort of left in limbo, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I imagine um, the trial might put to rest some of these questions once and for all. Um, I don't think the Canadian government would have hesitated to charge him um, if they had any evidence that he did go to Syria. And in fact, there's evidence that he was kind of traveling between Pakistan and Canada during that time that mm -hmm. he was supposedly in Syria. So, yeah, I mean, I just think when you base, you know, seven, I think it is, it's like seven episodes out of 12. And when you mention this guy in all but two episodes, like it's kind of hard to escape the fact that, that you largely did retract Caliphate. And also I think, it's problematic to not acknowledge that there are issues with the whole thing, right? There's issues with the way that these interviews with the Yazidi women were conducted and girls. There's issues with uh, the way that she removed more than 15,000 documents from Iraq, which was widely condemned by Middle East scholars, by Iraqis themselves, who called it plunder. Would you do that if, if, you, were, if you were reporting from a, a war zone and, and came upon a huge trove of abandoned documents? Would you take them? I wouldn't take them without proper permission because they're not mine to take, right? Like, I think what we need to understand is this is kind of a colonial attitude to jump into a region with which you have no personal connection and think that these belong to you, right? These belong to the people of Iraq and uh, to Iraq as a nation. This country has been through enough. And I wouldn't feel that sense of entitlement personally. 
Just imagine an Iraqi journalist coming to the U.S., coming across documents and feeling like they were entitled to take these documents out of the country. I just think there would be outrage, as there should be here in the U.S. Like, who are you to come take this and think that it belongs to you? But I also question the way that they were published without redacting uh, people's names, including, you know, the names of minors and personal identifying information. Mm -hmm. Again, I think if it were Americans or if it were Europeans, we would be a lot more careful with that. We can't disconnect kind of the colonial attitude that comes along with being an American journalist traipsing around in these um, countries full of brown people and the entitlement that comes along with that and the power dynamic, right? Um, you know, I think it's it's definitely not a clear-cut question in my mind. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate that the the New York Times seemed to, or like the media industry as a whole, seemed to have kind of ignored the questions raised by Middle East scholars and, and Iraqis themselves. Finally, we can't fully cover the Caliphate situation without telling you a bit more about the Andy Mills situation. Before his hit show collapsed under scrutiny, Andy Mills was one of those guys that women at work warned each other about, quietly, but who was too successful to speak out against publicly. That all changed when Caliphate, a show that he pitched and produced, fell apart. And when that happened, as Rukmini Kalamaki was reassigned and other people were facing consequences, Mills seemed magically immune. It's just such a beautifully perfect illustration of how some people are randomly chosen by their bosses as untouchable. That's Jolenta Greenberg, co-host of the podcast By the Book and We Love You. She worked with Andy Mills at WNYC back when he was a producer for Radiolab. And by way of disclosure, in this small world of audio, her husband is the host of a rival daily podcast to The Daily on ABC. Basically, WNYC was just sort of run poorly and left unchecked when it came to sexism while I was there. And while Andy was also there, we came up at basically the exact same time. I never worked with him directly, but he's one of the first people when you join the industry that you hear of sort of in the whisper network. Similar to like, I'm a comedian. One of the first comedians you heard about was Louis C.K. Uh, and all the whisper networks, like don't be alone with him. Same thing when I started working in radio and podcasting, just audio. Uh, watch out for Andy Mills. Like he'll either hit on you or if he's not into you, like maybe bully you. In recent weeks, women have come forward to accuse Andy Mills of a bunch of nasty behavior over the years. He told women that they were only hired because they were women. He told one colleague that Radiolab doesn't hire women because they lack technical skills. He told women that they were too pretty to be taken seriously. He poured beer on a colleague at a work drinks thing. None of these allegations are criminal. They're just things that shouldn't happen in any professional environment. And things that some listeners might assume, wrongly, don't really happen in the ostensibly woke and friendly world of public radio and podcasting. When Jalenta Greenberg herself spoke up about Andy Mills and the Caliphate situation, Michael Barbaro didn't want to hear it. Yeah, he blocked me. We asked Michael Barbaro and Andy Mills for comment. No luck there. I'm going to leave today's show with a thought from Jalenta. You see, she and I are podcasting old timers. And one thing that became clear in chatting with her is that we both recognize in this Caliphate situation that it feels like a watershed moment in this thing of ours, this nerdy little world of ours that somehow just yesterday became an industry, this podcasting thing that could have been anything, but which maybe is turning into the same old thing. Celebrities are being handed the podcasts and the best storytellers, the best producers, and other voices are starting to be pushed out. And I feel like we're sort of at this turning point of, of these gates uh, almost closing. And I don't want them to before we get better representation in there, at least, or don't let them close and point out that like the amount of money a news show brings in shouldn't justify lack of accountability.
That is your Canada land. Listen, we need more supporters if we're going to continue to do the kind of shows that we want to do. And um, what we want to do is give you some stuff in return. And we've made it very easy to support us. If you are a listener of the show, uh, I think you should be supporting us. I think we're worth it. I think you should go to canadaland.com slash join or just click on the link in the show notes. We've got ad-free podcasts and other extras and merchandise. Please go check it out now. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLand.com. You should be listening to this season of Commons All About the Police. The most recent episodes are about the G20. Kasia Mihailovic produced this episode. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, please support it. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.